You're listening to the Arts Emergency Podcast. Welcome to episode 22 of the Arts Emergency Podcast, the podcast that gives young emerging artists a platform and a source of inspiration each and every month. Earlier this month, Meryl Streep gave a powerful Golden Globe speech in which she quoted her late friend Carrie Fisher, Take your broken heart, make it into art. It's something that massively resonated with me as I've tried to do it myself for years and it's often been all I've felt I could do when disappointment has come my way. And I don't just mean romantic heartbreak, career-related letdowns or the death of a loved one. Sometimes the devastation is political. A sadness or anger on account of world events or recent election results. So in this episode, I'm featuring a host of amazing people who have taken personal or political struggle and turned it into something culturally significant or emotionally valuable. Because in my opinion, the ability to take the crap that life throws at you and turn it into something beautiful is true art. You may have noticed this episode is a little bit longer than usual, and that's because there was so much great content this month, it was hard to know what to cut. The hardest edit of all, though, was one of the most moving student soundtracks we've ever had on the podcast. So touching, in fact, it actually reduced me to tears. We also have an inspiring 10-minute takeover from Reclaim, a Manchester-based charity that is changing the narrative around working-class young people. And we end the show with rapper Lost Soldier's final thought, in which she explores how being plagued with anxiety led her on a life-changing journey through mindfulness. But we begin with two incredible writer-performers whose one-person shows I was lucky enough to see for the first time last year. The brilliant Joe Selman Lever, whose politically charged sellout fringe show Labels also made it to Latitude's poetry stage, where I saw it. And the sensational Lottie Rice, whose heartbreaking, jazz-infused show, Exactly Like You, made my decision to stay an extra day in Edinburgh so completely worth it. When they dropped into the studio for a chat, I was keen to find out how the ideas for two such unusual shows were first conceived. Well, it was the beginning of 2015 and we were sort of six months away from a general election or a few months, few months away from general election and sort of few months having had the European elections. And I was getting quite um, frustrated with the fact that it was always Farage cropping up and, and kind of given what I felt was sort of uh, a disproportionate amount of airtime mm. and too few people were getting the chance to sort of present a, a view of multicultural Britain, which I had experience and lived you know lived through i'm living through um being of dual heritage so what is your heritage so my dad is um of indian heritage but was born in uganda um as were both his parents part of the gujarati indian community that were basically forced to leave growing up it, it was sort of um you know few and far between incidents of racism that, that would happen and so I never had to confront it very much and suddenly it seemed like everyone was having to confront it whether that was their heritage or, or not you know it was like everyone had an opinion or was forced to have an opinion on on this topic so that was really the push to take labels to Edinburgh but I it had already existed in a shorter form than it than it currently is so there was a workshop led by Emma Thompson when I was still at university on racism and diversity and those things and uh, we were asked to prepare something and I sort of wrote the beginning of what is now labels that exist as a show so it was sort of the I suppose the political environment at the beginning of 2015 and how that worsened in terms of you know refugees for instance and um, obviously leading up to Brexit but although we were a year and a half away from that you know kind of but it was that was all bubbling away that the things that led to that were all bubbling away and I suppose that was the sort of kick that I needed I think to get a team together to to help me you know make the show and and tour it. And was there ever any point where you thought 
this is this is too big an undertaking. Am I going to be able to do this? Um, definitely, yeah. I think there were, you know, the obvious sort of worries about how do you fund Edinburgh because it, it's notoriously expensive. We 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 all lost money as individuals, even though we had a good run. You can have a, a successful Edinburgh and, and still lose money. Um, so I was very aware of that, and we were lucky enough to get some R and D funding from the Arts Council. They don't fund Edinburgh, but you can get funding to, for development of you know the actual show itself. Um, so we were lucky enough to get that. So there were there were worries about that sort of thing, but also just how people would react to it you know would people want to come and see a show about an issue that they might already be sick of hearing about to be honest or that they might not view as entertainment when often so much theatre has to compete with comedy which is you know huge in Edinburgh and it was it was all that sort of thing I think logistical and financial stuff which I think we all have as as theatre makers when it you know when we're trying to start out <laughs> so yeah. yeah so Lottie how did you start out the birth of my show happened when I was I was in Edinburgh and I had never considered writing, or I'd, I'd written before, but um, it had always been very personal stuff that I never wanted to show anyone. And I'd been to see some shows that were just so incredibly inspiring, created completely by one woman and performed completely by that one woman. Mm. And I was just like, damn, you don't need anything else. Like, you you know, everyone everyone can do this and it's so powerful. It's such a powerful medium, having one person tell a story. So were you literally just in Edinburgh as, you know, a tourist almost no, for the I was, I was actually up there with a play. Oh, OK. Yeah, I was up there with a play. I'd seen some shows as well in Edinburgh of people sort of the same age as me who had kind of gone up and just on a whim and free fringe type thing and created something and, and just done it. And so although I didn't find it like necessarily inspiring as such it made me think oh this is actually something that is doable it's not out of my reach to do something like that so I had the idea so then I started writing and all of the stuff that I was writing was kind of in rhyme so I started kind of doing some poetry nights and stuff which was quite a big step for me because kind of just standing up on your own and performing was not something especially performing my own words was not something that I'd ever thought I'd do because I was I trained as an actor I went to RADA and you're kind of grown to be a sort of instrument for someone else's writing. instrument for someone else's writing and someone yeah. else's directing and someone else's ideas mm. and you can bring your creativity within that but it definitely I came out of rather very crippled in terms of like making my own work I didn't think that that was at all what I was meant to be doing wow so it was quite a big I don't know shedding of a skin really mm, of armor maybe of armor yeah. yeah it was definitely a shedding of armor but a really liberating one because I think I'd got to the stage where I was like oh a lot of the stuff that I'm doing it's just not it's not fully me and I kind of had this penny drop where I was like well if you want to do the stuff that you want to do maybe you just have to do it yeah and not wait for someone else to give you the opportunity to do it which is basically what I was doing and it was making me quite miserable because you can't expect other people to just give you what you want so yeah, it was in 2014 that I had the idea, but then it took a little while for that idea to kind of materialise. And then suddenly, like a year later, I had I had an idea, I had a team around me and um, I was like, good to go. So the show's called Exactly Like You. Tell me a bit about the story of Exactly Like You. So in brief, it's about a girl who sort of lost her way in life a little bit. She's kind of going through the motions and... She's existing but not living. We learn in the first third of the play about her childhood with her nan. She was sort of brought up by her nan and the kind of beautiful relationship that they had that involved a lot of storytelling. Her nan was a great storyteller. And then her her, her nan's kind of withering of her dementia to death and where that leaves Abby, who's the, who's the central character. 
with her nan's death dies all of her kind of creativity and confidence because it was almost what their relationship was so it's a journey to kind of you know how is she going to get that confidence yeah exactly so then we find her in the present moment like eight years later stuck in this mundane existence and the ghost of Nina Simone starts appearing to her (laughs) and Nina Simone was like her nan's favorite musician And it's almost like she's been sent as an angel from her nan. And basically Nina Simone sort of leads her out of her darkness by some interesting methods. Are those themes that you identify with personally? You know, is it a semi-autobiographical story? Definitely, yeah. To begin with, it was more autobiographical, but then I sort of had a moment where I was like, I actually don't, I don't want this to be about me, so I'm going to change the name. And and, um, it gave me a bit more of creative freedom as well. I'm so in awe of people who get up and tell their their own story. It's, yeah. it's very brave. But. but at the same time, you want to kind of open it up so that anybody can identify with it. Absolutely. And it's those universal themes that really reach people, isn't it? Absolutely. And I, I think the crux of it is very much my story. Then the details are slightly different. But as you say, exactly, it was definitely written in mind because I'd hit a stage where I was like, this feeling that I've had in my early 20s, this kind of like, feeling of being lost this feeling of being really confused and like feeling of like self-destruction or self-destructive habits I know I'm I know I'm not the only one like Mm. and I can see it in other people I can see other people experiencing it in their own way Abby's story is is a kind of like every man's story yeah exactly every woman's story rather so Joe did you reach a similar point where you kind of maybe even struggle to strike the balance between how much of yourself you were going to put out there and how much you were going to make as universal as possible. Yeah, I think it was um, something that that myself and the director and dramaturg Katerina, who I worked really closely with on labels, thought about a lot. What's the purpose of autobiography within this? You know, So with labels, I felt that everything needed to be true, even if some of the elements of storytelling involved embellishment. Uh, my dad is quite a prominent character in, in the play and often... The performance of him is more heightened than when I'm playing myself as such because that's much more real <laughs> or, yeah. in terms of delivery. You know, that's just me chatting to the audience. And the the reason for that was because we wanted him to be a bit more mythical, I suppose. But the content of what he says is all true. And I, and I felt from the start, and Katarina agreed, that it was um, important to have that because uh, the whole point of the show is to present, you know, a real slice of multicultural Britain and present it as not okay this is a multicultural story but just this is a story this is a family story and 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 in just so doing hopefully make people not see us and them but just us so being as close to reality in content was was really important even if the the style was more embellished in places yeah it's about being honest isn't it exactly and even if you're kind of establishing a lens through which we see that truth there's a sense of honesty in it right right exactly whereas to compare it to love thy monster which is the the new solo show from um myself and, and work like theater autobiography is used as a tool through which to explore other things and there are lots of things in that show which aren't true or which mm. are you know far more removed from the truth so you know perhaps slightly more similar to your route of distancing yourself a bit more from the central character and inventing more things and you know and there's a purpose to that too. You know. Yeah, it's the purpose of storytelling, mm. isn't it? Sometimes in order to get something into the hour frame, you need to kind of write things that are representative of truths. Maybe mould a couple of characters exactly, together, mess yeah. about with the chronology a little exactly, bit. Exactly, exactly. Mm. 
So in Love, Thy Monster, which obviously I saw the preview of, you play quite a few different characters. There's only, I think there's only one female in it. Is that right? There's, there's two. Two, yeah. yeah. So there's Sally mm. and then there's your girlfriend. Mm. But you also play Mike Tyson and Patrick <laughs> Stewart at various points throughout. And this was kind of how you chose to kind of establish a narrative around ideas of masculinity and the way women are treated. Talk a little bit about the story. Yeah, so again, with the caveat that not all of the, the story is true um, uh, and that things were moulded and, and changed and whatever, I suppose it's a, a, a way of trying to explore the assertion that most of us would make, which is that we're not violent people, but knowing that we all have you know, feelings of frustration and anger at times because we're all human, I suppose it, that's the heart of it, is trying to look at what's the boundary between violence and non-violence and why are some people not able seemingly to keep a lid on that the tool through which to do that in the show is for me to just embody various performances of masculinity so partly myself partly or a version of myself partly some invented things based on some things that did really happen partly a shakespeare adaptation of a play of a story Mm. about domestic violence which was sort of told through shakespearean you know extracts um, that i was involved with years and years and years ago so partly there's Shakespeare's characters, for instance, Othello, or um, there's a speech at the end of Taming of the Shrew, which is normally done by Catherine, is then changed as if, you know, what would happen if a, if a man is saying that and you change certain, mm. certain language within it. With Mike Tyson and Patrick Stewart, I suppose it was that when I was actually in this play years ago, I was sort of researching violence, aggression, male attitudes towards women, you know, as in by men who who actually abuse their, their partners. And the language that you use when you kind of slip into Mike Tyson mode or Patrick mm. Stewart mode, is that stuff that you've kind of written based on stuff that they've said or is it more kind of verbatim? Yeah, the stuff that I say as them is verbatim. Wow. Um, so, yeah. So, wow. Yeah. yeah. Mike Tyson really has said some dark pretty, stuff then. Pretty awful That's, things, yeah. yes. Yeah. yeah, there were some quite disturbing moments that because he does speak in such a comedic way almost. Right, exactly. That it's, it's a weird kind of juxtaposition, it is. isn't it? Very much so, yeah. But what you did incredibly well is you actually managed to make him almost endearing to the point where you were still shocked every time he came out with something horrific. You know, as an audience member, there was still that sense of, did he really just say that? Well, I'm glad you say that. I'm glad that comes through because mm. I think that's something me and the director, we noticed sort of in, in the, the early drafts of the piece, as I put it together, that that journey was starting to emerge, that there was an ability for us to almost get the audience on his side and almost perhaps pity him at the end and perhaps for him almost to have a moment of redemption and then to take that floor away and, and leave him in the darkness because I, I don't believe, you know, having having spent quite a lot of time studying him, researching him, reading his autobiography and other things that are written about him and slightly more objective things that other people have tried to put together about his life. I I don't think he uh, has learned from the many mistakes that he's made and I don't don't think he's a a wiser person. So I think one of the things that really (laughs) blows the audience away about one-person shows in general and always kind of the little snippets of conversations that I hear whenever I've been to see a good well-executed one-person show is, gosh, isn't it amazing how they managed to switch between characters so quickly? And both of you did that incredibly well. I mean, Lottie, you went from, like, Irish to Scottish to, you know, East London within the space of, like, you know, 60 seconds at times. Talk about what that was like and how you so quickly are able to embody those completely different people. 
It's so funny, actually, because I've just kind of gone back into rehearsals for it. Even though I know the play so well, I haven't done it for four months. So um gone back into rehearsals and it's actually those bits that now is the dexterity of, of like switching on a tightrope between characters. It's all written in rhyme, so... There's not the, actually much room, is there, for you to take the time to switch if you need the time to switch. There's no switch, room, just exactly, do it. exactly. And what I found coming back to it is harder than I remember because I think once I'd got to Edinburgh, I'd been stewing in it and all mm. of the characters had been stewing in and I'd thought so much about them and what lines to cut and, you know, whether the rhythms worked. But coming back to it, I'm like, oh, <laughs> how, how did I do that? Like, um, but what it is, it's definitely... Um, because what I'm finding myself doing is either rushing between the characters and blurring them or waiting for the next character to kind of land in my body. And actually what it is, is that there's a beat between each character, which is like a space where you switch and it's not going from kind of just straight from one line into another. It's like a moment and it's like a millisecond where you go, oh no, I'm this other character. And it is very elusive. And if I'm a bit tired, it just doesn't work. Because it's just like, you just kind of like machine gun your way through it. And that's actually, you know, the idea that if you're tired, it's so much harder. Must be a real challenge when you're at the fringe and you're doing a show every single day for, what, 20, 25 days or something like that? Yeah. The weird thing was, I was so exhausted up in Edinburgh, but... I always had energy for the show. Mm. But the one thing about Edinburgh that is really difficult is the audiences vary quite a lot. And I was quite lucky with my audiences, but I definitely noticed that when you had like a sellout show, every single person in the audience gave you energy. Yeah. And when you've got like slightly less, you definitely feel like you have to work a bit harder mm. um, because you're not getting quite so much oh, yeah. back from them. I totally get that. You know, it like I don't drink, so... Even on nights out, like I feed off other people's energy. Yeah, yeah. And it kind of works both ways. <laughs> you know, yeah. sometimes like if everybody's trashed and having a great time and dancing around, then <laughs> you're, you're I feel like I am yeah, as well and I'm yeah. bubbling. But in the same way, if everybody's feeling a bit dry, then I'm just like, mm. yeah, totally, totally brings you down. So I can yeah. understand how that would happen on stage as well. Yeah. What do you do if the crowd is a bit flat? How do you, where do you draw from? Do you know what? With this show, my mum actually said something that really helped because she came to see it a couple of times, once with a really big audience and once with a much smaller audience. And she said she actually preferred it with the smaller audience because when people are laughing at all of the jokes... You miss lines. Well, you miss lines. And she said also when, when there was less laughter, she got more of the like the depth because mm. it is kind of both. It is a comedy, but it does also have quite a lot of... Emotion. Emotion, yeah. And very kind of subtle nuances of emotions within that emotion as well. It does turn corners quite quickly. Mm. So there can be like a really funny line and then it's like very quickly into something. Lots of light and shade, yeah. Lots of light and shade, exactly. So I want to talk a little bit about memorising. You have got to memorise for a one-person show the entire hour on your own and you are there on your own and there is no one else to give you any kind of verbal or visual cue or anything I want to talk about how you get to the point where you can be okay with that (laughs) Uh, well I don't know how you do it Lottie but for me with labels it was kind of I'd map out the physical journey so when when the play was sort of you know let's say 60 to 70 percent in my head and I kind of knew all the bits but not necessarily the sequence I um spent a lot of time just sort of really running the transitions I suppose kind of like okay I'm here for a bit and then I talk about this and then I'm there and then that leads into this and you'd sort of find your own internal logic you know for for the sequence of events 
for instance, in labels, there's you know sticky labels, and there's yeah. like there's, there's an they have their own sort of narrative as such. So mm. um, yeah, because you have labels literally stuck yeah, all over your body. Exactly, don't you? and there's ones I put on the audience, and there's cards like politicians. And there's one you eat. As one I, I have eat. to ask. Yes, is it real paper that you eat? Uh, you're asking them. No, yeah, it is. <laughs> it, uh, it's not real paper. It's, it's it is fake. Yeah, it's, I'm relieved um, to hear paper. it. Oh, rice paper. Sorry, yeah. <laughs> that yeah. was definitely one of those moments that you have as an audience member watching, where you're like. Is he really gonna? He's really, do, he's really doing that, and he's actually <laughs> swallowing the whole thing. Um, well, Rel- relieved um, to hear that your digestive system you. is yeah. <laughs> in a good place. I don't know if I still be able to tour it. <laughs> no, <laughs> yeah, because that's a, that's a sheet of paper yeah. a day, isn't it? Yeah, um, yeah, exactly. So, um, so yeah, and then with Love Thy Monster, there's there's less of the sort of there's less of those things, fewer props and that sort of stuff to follow. Mm. So it was much more like word association games that I'd play um to be be able to kind of go okay well there's Stuart talking about this theme and that relates to the next thing Tyson talks about there might be a keyword in each one which or an image that I can link use Mm. to link the two that's that's how I've tended to do with this one has there ever been moments where you're like oh my god I've literally skipped a whole chunk um yeah (laughs) and I've had to sort of go back and rewrite have you have you heard that not a whole chunk, but little bits sometimes, yeah. sometimes disappear. For me, it was um, it was slightly different because I sort of had had this very intense period of writing it. And, and again, because it's written in rhyme and mm. very rhythmically like... That uh, must help. Yeah, exactly. In writing it, I think a lot about the rhythms and the sounds. So it's it physically flows in my mouth. So remembering it or learning it all was, was easy. Like I didn't even have to... I didn't even have to learn any of it. It was just in me. Wow, okay. Um, but what was really difficult and what m- meant that I tripped up quite a lot and what scared me a little bit going into performance was having to cut stuff. We did have to cut back because obviously I'd written a hell of a lot more than would fit into the, the hour. hour slot. Yeah. So we had to cut back loads, loads and loads and loads and loads. And that meant cut- I mean, cutting up verse lines that I'd written. So basically, effectively, you know, an A4 page, for example, of, of, of uh, like, you know, Dialogue. Something dialogue that, yeah. that for me flowed perfectly. Yeah, and you in, had to cut it out. Having to chop large chunks out. So, so the fear is that you'll accidentally say that large chunk and then go, "Oh my god, I'm yeah. going to run out of time." So it took, I've now said what I shouldn't have said. Exactly. It took sort of rewiring my brain to go, "No, that stops there." And then you jump to this bit, and to you, it feels really clunky because that's not how it's written. But you're going to do it anyway <laughs> because you've only got you've got you've only got an hour slot. <laughs> it's yeah it's so it's so tricky when you've written it as well because you know having had played stage myself it's very like you've written it in a certain way yeah. for a very specific reason and I remember like the first play I ever had staged um the the, the actors did an incredible job because they had huge amounts of dialogue to memorize because it was kind of monologues that all sort of interlinked and there was only four actors and um, there was this moment that I will never, ever forget where somebody is referring to a female character who's an older lady who isn't quite as as mature as she should be. And they say that she wears red lip gloss, but she doesn't. She wears pink lip gloss. And I had written it as pink lip gloss. <laughs> and I'd written it as pink lip gloss for a very specific reason, because pink lip gloss says something very specific about how mentally like, and emotionally young she is. And I just remember being sat in the audience and just having this moment where I just went, <laughs> that's, not what I wrote. <laughs> that's not what I wrote. And that must be even harder when you are the writer and the performer. And, you know, you skip something or you say something yeah. wrong. Were there times, are there times when you walk away and just really kind of beat yourself up a bit for not delivering the words that you wrote in the way in which you would have liked? Sometimes, although for me, I find 
I beat myself up more about performative things that go wrong rather than bits of text that I've I've messed up right. um, usually. But uh, I, what I was going to sort of pick up on that and just perhaps ask you as well was uh, I, I find it a, a real struggle with that writer performer you know dual hat on yeah. um, more in in the R and D and rehearsal process because I find it really hard to kick the writer out of the room because oh, you are my the writer days are so hard yeah <laughs> so, when you're like yeah. sitting there stewing over that line that yeah. just doesn't sound right it's like, snap out of it <laughs> right exactly and it's yeah. it's hard to sort of know which bit you're focusing on because it's like you're it's so hard not to edit or rewrite stuff on your feet which then oh, yeah. completely messes up the actual rehearsal bit which you know and, and you need to slightly sep- at least slightly separate but both those elements don't you otherwise you yeah, can't definitely. <laughs> get it up on its feet yeah, it w- yeah, I definitely had that same problem, especially because, you know, before you go into rehearsals, you are so consumed in the writing and with every single word, with every single beat. And, and also, I don't know about you, but I honestly wrote about eight plays when I was writing this one wow. <laughs> with the amount that I had to cut out and yeah. with the kind of plot lines that I explored. I knew the very core of what I wanted my story to be, but I didn't actually know how I was going to get from the beginning to the end. It, what I found very difficult was committing to to the story that that I ended up with mm. it did involve a lot of sacrifice a lot of drafts a lot of things thrown in the bin that I actually really loved do either of you I don't know draw up a kind of plan for how you're going to tell the story before you write it or do you both just kind of jump in and get writing I definitely jump in and get writing I wish I could plan but <laughs> because I, I suppose the, the reason why I write is is because I like the sounds of words it's sort of, right. that's where I have to start is sort of like it's more visceral almost like a feeling that I need to communicate and I do that through words and through the sounds of words and and then from there I see a story with my next project which I don't I don't know whether that's going to be a play or not but I'm definitely going to definitely going to plan. <laughs> I love the fact that the words come before the story for you. That's yeah. so interesting because for me, you know, as a writer, like I think of a story and then the words go in afterwards, do you know what I mean? So yeah. the I fact can't that it's see the opposite the is crazy. That's yeah. so interesting. I can't see the story I can't see the story. I think everything that I've ever written has come from a from a feeling and it's like mm. th- put the words together to try and recreate that feeling. Mm. It's funny because it kind of writing often sort of works as therapy and I can see how your way of doing it, you know, writing from the emotion to the words to the story would definitely be a form of therapy. And yeah. But almost like you know where the feeling is coming from and you can see where the feeling's at and it's a very kind of, it's almost like the feeling is personified in a way. Yeah. Whereas like when I write, I think of the story, then come the words, then I reread it and I go oh, you were feeling betrayed when you wrote that. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Oh, and yeah. it's like you learn about yourself. Yeah, it's almost like a yeah. self-analysis yeah. that kind of comes after. Joe, what what's the order with you? I feel like uh, early on get the, um, I feel for like the, the language of it. So, you know, what what is the sort of the form of the, the, that story's taking? Um, and that comes a bit more instinctively and, and not free write, but it can kind of come pouring out. And then the planning bit comes a bit later on. But I had a similar thing of, you know, eight plays in one and yeah. then finding, well, what's the, the, centri- the, cent- yeah. the you know, the actual central yeah. story. Um, although I found in a way that can be a real strength and, and an asset to you because the world within which, you know, yeah. if your play is a, a planet, it's a much richer, yeah. vibrant planet. And Definitely. you can, you know, zoom in on which Yeah, none of it felt of like it. a waste. Yeah. I mean, I would sort of compare it perhaps to, I don't know how you work as an actor, but like that thing of what you see in, in the hour play that you go to watch is the tip of the iceberg that the cast have done on their 
their roles and they'll know loads more about their characters and yeah, that, like, you know yeah. all their backstories and stuff like that that will never get revealed in the play necessarily but the fact that they know them creates it a much more so rich sort funny, of you know, that, yeah. yeah when i was at drama school we we did a lot of that like you know stanislavski training mm. where you create this whole story um for your character do loads and loads of writing and improvising and stuff for a character that has like a few pages of text in in a play yeah, yeah, but you've created too, this yeah. whole and it always seemed to have such an incredible effect on the audience when you're seeing a character that is just so alive. Yeah, because you know, you know, by the time you've written that extensive backstory, you know that character so well. Mm. You know what makes them tick, you know their mannerisms, you know how they dress and, you know, like which way they vote. And having all of that yeah. there behind you, is just like makes it so much easier to embody that person, doesn't it? Yeah. And, you know, the same token with writing, you know exactly where that character is going to go and what decisions they're going to make, even if you don't really want them to make those decisions. It's like, well, that is the decision that that person would make because they are now so real to me. I think that nothing you write ends up being a waste, even if you're kind of writing those eight different plays. It's a bit like, I don't know, baking a pie and making a little bit too much pastry and you have to kind of cut off the edges once you put the lid on and then you can turn those little bits of excess pastry into like cookies or whatever. And I've definitely found that with my writing where I'll write little plays or little scenes or whatever and maybe take them out of bigger things and, you know, maybe even plays and scenes that just won't go anywhere. But then a couple of years down the line, I'm like, actually, I could use that relationship that those two characters had in that and implement it in something else. Do you both ever find that you pick up on things a couple of years later and go, oh, I can can draw on that? Mm. Yeah, it's kind of mad that, like, and that's that's why I try and write, poetry because um there's something that kind of flows out of you and you're like okay that's great that was rubbish close that close that book leave it there and then I just love going through my old notebooks because I find something like oh my days that's actually quite good and it's making me think of this and this and this and then what was just a kind of spur of the moment impulsive little poem turns into a whole new idea and um, it's so important to just hang on to everything that you write and create, isn't it? Yeah. Because you never know when it might be useful. You know, I, f- I feel like I'm a little bit of a, a hoarder when it comes to mm. that. Kind of, I've got so many files on my MacBook of just like little things. Little and ideas. even if you think it's crap, it's worth hanging on to, isn't it? Yeah, Definitely. absolutely. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about like the practicalities of staging your own show and taking it to Edinburgh and you know kind of the financial side of it like how did you bring it all together what kind of team did you have to kind of get around you and you know I know you did you both crowdfund is that how you yeah crowdfunding's got to be done it's brutal um and and doing fundraisers but the costs I think there's a lot of hidden costs basically Mm. that you need to kind of be aware of um and they are obviously the 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 rent that you're gonna have to pay when you're up there and the the PR like it's it there's a Mm. lot of noise there's so much noise in Edinburgh because there's so many shows so it's like you have to somehow make your show as loud as everybody else's if not louder and by Mm. by loud I mean kind of like visible yeah Um, because going to the fringe was pretty overwhelming for me I wasn't sure what to expect and it was just like an onslaught you know it was it was a real yeah (laughs) like literally look at me you know I'd have people literally jump in front of me and go look at me (laughs) you know it was quite like dancing up with a flyer yeah Yeah. you walk along Royal Mile and it's just 
insane. You know, it's a proper assault on the senses. Yeah. And to kind of, you know, I was there for eight days in the end and it still didn't feel it's like exhausting, enough. Yeah. Yeah, was yeah you have to really lose your ego, drop it and just be like, yeah, selling yourself. When I was flying, I felt a bit like I was asking people to be my friend. <laughs> so I didn't do it very much because I hated, I hated doing it. But Yeah, um, I did a bit of it for a friend of mine who's a comedian who did a great show up there and did really well. And yeah, it was very much like looking at people and thinking, what about this show will interest you? Yeah. You know, there were, there were groups of lads that I literally went up to and went, football, football, <laughs> football. And then like, there were some sad looking men that I went up to and went, heartbreak? No, football, <laughs> heartbreak. Which do you like more? Which do you like Take more? <laughs> Something for everyone, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's, oh, it's, it's crazy, but wonderful. It, it gives you a sort of whole new respect for, you know, how difficult a job, you know, sales and marketing yeah. can be and stuff Absolutely. like that. Because at the end of the day, you know, someone Absolutely. has to do that. And, and when you're working it. on that scale, like often that person is you or, yeah. or you know, you're the close friends that you're working with. And, yeah, you're definitely, um, a, a whole machine it felt like way too much and it was totally exhausting and overwhelming but I was also like wow I'm growing muscles that, right. <laughs> that yeah. I wouldn't be growing other ways exactly. and, and muscles that I really that I, I really want mm. there are I, I want in themselves aren't they yeah <laughs> yeah like... and I think there's something sort of almost like empowering I guess. empowering yeah like I think before there was a bit of I had a bit of snobbery I suppose um, where I was like, you know, I want my work to sell itself. I don't want to have to go out and sell it for myself. And actually that is snobbery and mm. it's ego. And it was a really, it was really humbling being in Edinburgh and being like, no, yeah. I am going to go, I'm going to do the graft. I'm going to get my hands dirty and talk to people and be embarrassed and be shut down and be ignored. And I'm going to take it all and keep doing it because it's, you know, it's that amazing, amazing skill of kind of hearing a no and just keep keeping on going. And you can walk away from doing all that thinking, I can, I can do anything now. I'm yeah. invincible. I definitely couldn't have done it without a team. I'm terrible at admin. If I had to do all of the kind of venue applications and stuff, I had producers to do that for me I don't think I would have ever made it to Edinburgh but I did think that when I was there I was like I'm gonna be an unstoppable beast when I get back to London with all of these skills I don't know that I am for those reasons you've just mentioned it's probably a good thing that the fringe has to end at some point because you, yeah. you can't like you'd burn out if you were doing that forever oh my, wouldn't you oh my like, goodness I definitely um... burn out I definitely <laughs> lost my whole personality as I knew it <laughs> but with all of the challenges and hardships of, of doing it I mean you're both gonna do it again right yeah definitely <laughs> I've, it was definitely the hardest month of my life, but the whole way through it, no matter how difficult I was finding it, no matter how exhausting, I was like, I cannot wait to do this again and learn from all of the things that I've learned this time and do it better. And yeah. Yeah. So what advice, finally, would you guys give to anyone who wants to kind of create their own work and put it out into the world as a solo artist of any kind? I would say... Ideas are often the easy bit and mm, making them happen are, yeah. are much, much harder. So I'd say, you know, kind of find, just find ways to start, you know, set yourself a, just a small exercise each day or each week or something. Get a feel for who's around and, and who's interested in what you're doing and, and just talk to people about what you're up to. Because I do I do believe that like that mantra of when the student's ready, the teacher appears, that sort of is, is also true for collaborators and venues and all, all that sort of stuff. Because when you're looking for something, it's more likely that you will stumble across it, even if it's not in the way you're expecting. And I also think... Uh, you know deadlines are really important um, more specifically than goals as such you know like a goal might be oh I want it to 
completely sell out and tour the world and that probably perhaps an unrealistic one but the <laughs> you know deadlines are I think much more useful because it can be like well I've, I've got a scratch in a month and then I've got like you know mm. a preview in three months and mm. then Edinburgh is a month after that or, or whatever it whatever it might be it might not be that you're working towards Edinburgh necessarily but w- just create a few deadlines for yourself um, because then it basically has to happen <laughs> yeah those yeah exactly that like some people are really brilliant at just putting stuff out and they have no resistance they've got they don't have that voice it's like oh you know it'll be rubbish or nobody's gonna like it or da 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 in fact the people that I'm usually most impressed by are the people that put out work that isn't very good because it's that thing they're not scared of failing and I think as an artist in order to create really good work you have to try and you have to fail yeah Uh, you have to silence those voices because I I do think that everyone hears those voices Mm. unless you're completely deluded but it's kind of going shh yeah doing something more important yeah because as (laughs) as soon as you put a piece of work out be it like at a scratch night I think scratch nights are amazing because mm. what, at scratch nights you've got loads of people making work. So if you get up and perform something, potential future collaborators are going to be in the room. It's just a, a very, very good thing to do. And often the things that you really need to do are like really scary, but it's great because it's an opportunity to really be brave and just kind of putting yourself in a position where you could fail miserably, I think is a really, really, really important thing. I know why I waited Know why I've been blue I've been waiting each day For someone exactly like you Why should I spend some money On a show or two When nobody sings those love songs If you're smart enough to listen to the podcast as soon as it lands, you'll have the chance to catch Lottie's show, Exactly Like You, at London's Vault Festival. It's on every evening until Sunday the 29th of January. Joe's new show, Love Thy Monster, will be hitting the fringe this summer. And you can also catch labels at Vault Festival from the 1st to the 5th of March. You can find the links to grab tickets for both those shows at the very bottom of the podcast description, so make sure you don't miss out. Next up, a London-based arts emergency student who hopes to use both the struggles he's been through and the music that inspires him to one day tell some of the most honest and important stories we will ever see on our screens. The Arts Emergency Student Soundtrack Hi, my name is Jay. I'm about to turn 17 and I live in Essex, but I was born in India. I'm currently studying creative writing, drama and English language at A-levels. I'm hoping to go to drama school after college, but I want to write and direct as well, and also do a bit of stand-up and music. Basically anything that involves storytelling. I just want to craft great stories. This is my Arts Emergency Student Soundtrack. The first song I've chosen for my Arts Emergency Student Soundtrack is Life the Biggest Troll by Childish Gambino. It was difficult not to pick a Gambino song for all of my tracks. He's been such a huge influence on me, and he's definitely my idol. Life the Biggest Troll just captures how I feel a lot of the time and the kind of conversations I have with myself. It's so beautifully done, and he really comes into his own because of the internet, the album the song closes. Gambino's always so raw yet eloquent, and there's few songs where that's more evident than this one. As a kid, I was always really shy and confident. I got bullied a lot, had family problems, and never felt like I fit in. I still don't really. 
Gambino is one of the few people who really gets this, and you can hear this through his music. He understands what it feels like to feel like you never belong, and there's very few people who can articulate it as well as him. We were told to go where they wouldn't go, hella slow, that's that dial up, watch it pile up, fly. Who hide the deepest desires and wear a mask like a lucha door open? We were smoking in the hotel. The vapors went through the hallway. The manager picked. The next song I've chosen is "You" by Kendrick Lamar. The Pimper Butterfly is a masterpiece by all accounts, and it's hard to pick a favorite song off of there. But this one had the largest effect on me. I've struggled with depression and self-loathing for a long time, and there's been times when it's gotten really bad. But Kendrick's been there for me with this song. His use of interpolation between the beat, his voice, and his lyrics make it so brilliantly effective, and I struggle not to cry every time this song comes on. He's so vulnerable, and his demons are visible for everyone to see, and I think that's partially what makes this song so great. Just the sheer courage required to pull something off like that so naturally. Very few other artists would do that, and even fewer could pull it off at all. Loving you is complicated. 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 Place blame when you steal, place shame when you steal. Feel like you ain't shit. Feel like you don't feel confidence in yourself. Breaking no marble floors, watching anonymous strangers telling me that I'm yours. But you ain't shit. I'm convinced your talent is nothing special. What can I blame you for? The next song I've chosen is "Long Time Too" by Chance the Rapper. Before Chance the Rapper took over the world, he released "Tender." It's a great project, but the last three songs are really where you see him blooming and becoming the artist he was destined to be. Long Time Two is so raw and beautiful and stunning. It's hard to explain the effect artists like Chance and Gambino have on me with songs like this, but they've definitely saved my life more than once. The way every single line is so visual and makes you feel like you're really there takes us to another level. And although Chance has many better songs, this song's the only one that was able to get that particular feeling of being a mess. Missing your family, hating yourself enough to get to that seemingly bottomless pit, and loving yourself enough to get back out. I wonder if Gladys smiles when angels bring my name up, or change language, your subject change up. A boy's a long way from red doors and green rangers. Things ain't been the same since Miss Patterson called me famous. Thanks for listening to my soundtrack. Music means a lot to me as it's helped me through some really tough times, but it's also helped me face my fears and problems. On a completely separate front, it teaches me a lot as a storyteller. It often reminds me not to be afraid to experiment with form, language, rhyme, rhythm, and emotions. I don't think I'd have even had the confidence to apply for Arts Emergency if it weren't for artists like Gambino, Kendrick, and Chance, who helped me believe in myself, especially when no one I knew in person believed in me. They gave me the confidence to pursue my dreams without fear, to talk about my dreams without fear of being pretentious, to make my first song. To delve deeper into my characters and even my stories, this was the world for a kid without a father and a mother who loved him dearly but never fully understood him. 
and a kid who the world never fully understood. Long time now Since I've seen you smile Long time, long time now Since I've seen you At the end of last year, I saw an incredibly powerful video that featured two of the young people the amazing Manchester-based charity Reclaim support. It triggered such a huge emotional response in me that it was virtually all I could think about for hours afterwards. These teenagers were so determined to subvert the stereotypes of what society had thrust upon them simply because they were working class. They were empowered, intelligent and had some serious gumption. They left me feeling totally inspired and I knew I had to get this incredible organisation on the podcast. Problems that working class young people regularly experience have motivated Reclaim to create a brand new programme this year. And here to talk about the project are Reclaim's Rachel Gibbons and Rebecca Smith. Hi, my name's Rebecca Smith from Reclaim, a working class charity that works with young people on a leadership programme called LEAD. And I am here with Rachel Gibbons. Hello, Hi. Rachel. Hello. Hi. I'm Rachel Gibbons. I'm 24 and I also work at Reclaim. Um, I'm from Withenshaw in Manchester. And Rachel's going to talk to us about Power at the Periphery and tell us a bit about this programme. So Power at the Periphery is pretty much a scaled-up version of the LEAD programme, but it's aimed at 18 to 25-year-olds from working-class backgrounds. And originally we wanted it to be more local, but it seems like we are recruiting young people nationally. It's a leadership programme for working class young people who want to be social activists or are keen on social activism and find that they meet quite a few barriers along the way. So this will be building skills around mobilising people, disrupting the status quo, but also more practical skills like finance and um, kind of tackling imposter syndrome. I think that's going to be a big part of it Mm. because we've had a lot of consultation with people between the ages of 25 and 18 and 25, sorry, and that came up a lot. So hopefully by the end of it, we'll have a lot of social activists ready to disrupt. Yeah, it sounds really exciting. And are you still in the recruitment phase of it when you talk about national recruitment? Yeah, so we already have a group of young people that we work with that we had a previous reclaim programme called Fair Futures, which was based on social mobility and it is young people from working class backgrounds and when they enter employment the kind of barriers that they face particularly across business media and politics sectors so we already have a pool of young people that were part of that that are quite keen to be part of power at the periphery as well and but there's about seven more spaces so we're looking to recruit that many external young people so yesterday we had the kickoff design day and kind of the content and i went through what I'd like to see on the programme, we did it alongside two people, both from Manchester, both from working class backgrounds, and both within the age bracket too. So it is pretty much youth-led in that respect. Awesome. I think the imposter syndrome thing is really interesting, and people don't often talk about that when they talk about leadership. In fact, Ruth, our CEO, has written a blog about imposter syndrome as a CEO, which is really interesting. Because, yeah, it's something that I think people experience quite a lot, and that we could spend more time exploring. Do you feel like that? Yeah, it's really interesting. I 
I loved Ruth, Ruth Darkland. I'd never really thought about imposter syndrome before. And reclaim working with young people generally between the ages of 12 and 14, you don't necessarily find that imposter syndrome at the end of their time on the programme because they feel confident enough to go out and speak about things that they care about. It's usually in the older young people where they're kind of going to these spaces that they don't feel entitled to be in. I feel mm. like it's about entitlement. Yeah. Interestingly, I sent round all the staff today what how the program is going to be like and what it's about. And someone emailed back and asked me what imposter syndrome was. Mm. So I don't feel like it's even really spoken about enough. And I yeah. feel like it's something that not just working class people face, but majority of women face and mm. people from ethnic minority backgrounds. So yeah, yeah. I think they're the kind of people that need to benefit from a programme like this. Mm. Yeah, I think that's really pertinent and interesting. And thinking about how we thought about imposter syndrome a bit at Reclaim, we thought about it in terms of going into high art culture spaces. Mm -hmm. So sometimes at Reclaim, we'll take young people into places that sort of, perhaps they don't feel like they have the right to be in there. Yeah. And that's been really interesting. And like that discomfort has expressed itself in different ways like whether that's like they're actually like the architecture of the space is threatening it's like one time we were going up to a pretty posh art gallery and the young people were like I feel like if there was an earthquake this place would fall down so there's yeah. this even the architecture of the place was not didn't feel comfortable yeah. if you know what I mean yeah that sense of uneasiness and you could have achieved all the things in the world and still be in a space where people don't look or sound like you and you think wow I really shouldn't be here like maybe I got here on just a chance or maybe I'm the token person a lot of the stuff that came out of the fairer futures work was about feeling like a token sometimes and I think that's definitely part of imposter syndrome is when you get into these spaces and you don't see people like you that you start to feel like maybe I'm just here to be the wild card yeah so I guess this program's kind of aimed at the wild cards. Yeah, amazing. Program aimed for the wild cards tagline. What about sort of talking more about the social campaigning part of Power at the Periphery? How do you think that's going to develop? You're not sure yet. So part of the consultation phase, one of the questions I asked was, do people already have in mind the kind of social movement that they would like to lead? And people kind of already did have a strong, like, passion already, and it wasn't necessarily about working class issues, there was um, issues about street harassment, there was issues about the way black men are portrayed in the media. So I guess this programme's kind of aimed at people who already have a strong sense of what they'd like to change in the world. It wouldn't be something that is kind of wishy-washy about activism and is trying to persuade people to get into activism. It's for people who who already Mm. think about it all the time, like, 24 7 that's what they care about Mm. so I feel like this is going to be setting up people who already have in mind what they want to change and by the end of it whether it's in a year whether it's in two weeks or in 10 years they'll have the skills necessary to kind of lead a social change or social campaign so Mm. um but there'll even be things about how to go out and ask for money when it's a really awkward conversation or how to crowdfund and and that kind of thing and how to do public speaking, how to feel like you have authority or delegate tasks without seeming like 
that's not cool to do that so mm. yeah it's not so much that we're expecting a campaign at the end of it but if one happens then that's cool yeah that's interesting like the range of issues you kind of briefly spoke about race and um, gender and then class as well as kind of something that sits separate to it but um yeah I know you've you've thought quite a bit about intersectionality and your yeah in the way you think about class Mm -hmm. um yeah yeah. I guess loads of conversations that we've had between the people that are going to be on the program well hopefully going to be on the program is about how class runs through everything so any issues that they've been challenged on in the past whether it's you know their involvement in crime they've said well class is part of that have you not noticed that that class is the issue that's the reason why people in my area are so heavily involved in crime so Mm. yeah I think it's I think it's really exciting and it's really nice to be with people who are from similar backgrounds and care about similar things and and also nice to meet people from different areas because it's going to be a national program yeah it's nice to get a sense of where people are at and some people are students, some people are graduated, some people are starting their first job. So, yeah, it's really nice for to to kind of like bond and mm. and yeah. It sounds like it'll be a really diverse group of people coming yeah. together, yeah. equipping themselves with tools for change, and then who knows what the consequence will be. So it's quite yeah exciting. It's really exciting because it's not just that practical element. There's also a lot of self reflection. So there'll also be Oasis School of Human Relations leading um part of the project kind of a lot of reflection and self appreciation as well so there'll Mm. be a lot of time to like chill out and think a lot Mm. which will be nice and we have a residential as well in the summer so great so like a self-care branch there there is yeah there's a self-care branch to the activism (laughs) because a lot of people like spoke about again how class is intersectional with mental health and stress and fatigue and burnout when when you are an activist and you don't mm. necessarily have mm. the money and time to do all these things that you want to do so it makes you really stressed and anxious and yeah so a lot of that will be about focusing and centering yourself and mm. thanks for sharing about what you're up to at the moment yeah. where do we look for more information so you can email me um if people do want to apply you have to send 200 words about why you'd like to be on the program and you can send that to me at r.gibbons at reclaimproject.org.uk and that's before the 18th of February. Finally, rapper Lost Soldier discusses what her anxiety and depression has taught her and how the journey this unhappiness and discomfort took her on has influenced both her creativity and her outlook on life. In this month's Final Thought. I've been on my own recovery I've struggled with anxiety and depression and through that, you know, came pain, a great deal of pain. But as that saying goes, no pain, no gain, it pushed me to find out answers and get therapy and and educate myself on Google and, you know, read psychology blogs and just basically try to find information so I could like build a key to get out of a cage, a mental cage that I was in. And on this journey, I was recommended a book called Mindfulness. You should check it out. There's a website called franticworld.com and they have uh, mindful meditations on there. And I realised through that that meditation isn't you know, necessarily sitting there and not thinking anything. It's just seeing a thought and letting it go and bringing yourself back to now and being aware 
of like what's going on in your in your body in your sensations the book again is called mindfulness it's by mark williams and danny penman through this journey i've learned about self-belief being able to see the true self and try and get rid of old habits old beliefs that didn't serve me i feel like we're all on a journey our own you know internal journeys and we pick up beliefs and programming basically Uh, conditioning of the brain we pick this up through life our brains are like sponges we're not born into the world with any particular beliefs we soak this up through conditioning of society or beliefs that are passed on through older generations through your friends who again are influenced by other people and society I started to learn that I'm carrying all these beliefs in my head and I need to clean out the bits that don't serve me. It's like you're on a journey and you've got a bag full of stuff and some of that stuff serves you and some of it doesn't. At points in your journey, you need to repack and get rid of some of that stuff so that you can travel light and you can enjoy the journey a bit better. So that's basically what I mean by flipping the script. Like we're all living our own movies and you wouldn't go to a cinema and just sit and watch any movie. Normally you're choosing the movie So that's how it is with our journeys. Our journeys are our own movies and we can direct our own movies. We can be the director and the scriptwriter and the main character and choose that. I wish there was more emphasis on protecting what you take into your brain and knowing what is good for it and what is not and being self-aware. I I think mindfulness and self-awareness should be taught like in schools, but it's not. Maybe one day it will be. In a nutshell, flip the script, no pain, no gain and look for your answers if you're going through anything whether it's anxiety depression or a dynamic with with another individual or something maybe of a feeling that doesn't feel right that's your body basically telling you um something we all have intuition we just some of us don't listen to the intuition or don't really know what it is but yeah i'd say carry on on your own journey if you can be awake on the journey so that you can enjoy life I'm on my own journey and I found mindfulness really helped me in music and it helps me in other areas of my life. So I definitely recommend that book. And if you're struggling with stuff, try and look at it as a positive. You can always flip it, direct your own movie and be the star of it. Feel the speakers jump up and feel the fever jump up and That's all for this month. If you'd like to find out more about the podcast or even contribute, please do get in touch via Twitter at Carla M. Sweet or at Arts Emergency. This episode was produced by me, Carla Sweet, with contributions from Lottie Rice, Joe Selman Lever, Jay Jalar, Reclaims Rachel Gibbons and Rebecca Smith and Lost Soldier. <laughs>